gives to us. Now, enjoy him. And we've seen in verses 28 leading into 39 as we go. How we're geared for his grace, growth in his grace by lowing of his sovereign work for his children. We saw this beginning in verse 28 where it says, We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, when you think of God's sovereignty, we hear the term sovereign tossed around a little bit when we talk about someone being a sovereign nation. Meaning that within their borders, they should have the right to 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 make decisions, to make their laws, to follow those laws, things like that. And they, they should be in some ways kept um, uh, within those boundaries, those borders. They, they should be respected. But in some ways, some nations are more sovereign, if you will, than others. You, you learn about as, as balance of, balances of power kind of shift on the globe. You'll, you'll hear about a nation like China or North Korea or something like that. Or, or Russia, or, or even the U.S., as the balance of power shifts, you'll hear about um, maybe uh, battle exercises, naval exercises being done very close to a sovereign nation's boundary. Well, whereas another sovereign nation is kind of flexing its muscle a little bit, kind of saying, you know, we're kind of growing in the power right now. If you think about it, I don't know of any other nation that has military bases on American soil because it's our sovereign ground. But yet we have power, we have, we have uh, the influence around the world that we have military bases on many other nations' soils. Even though they're a sovereign nation, America enjoys kind of a greater sovereignty, if you will, Around the globe. God in these verses is showing off his power, his sovereignty over time and space as the eternal, almighty God. He's he's showing his sovereignty over all people's lives, despite what we claim to control or be sovereign over. And it's his sovereignty that is meant to give us confidence. Confidence in how secure we are in his plan of salvation. And so we continue on into verse 31 where we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, meaning with having given us Christ, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
And these are the verses that we looked at last week. The confidence that we can have that God is going to carry out what he says he does. Carrying his adopted, his justified children on to glory, on to being glorified with him. We have that confidence in the down payment of his son having been given for us. And when when we come to Christ as our Savior, when we bow the knee and begin a relationship with God, what we are saying is, I cannot be in relationship with you because of my sin. But the payment that you made in your righteous, eternal Son The payment that you made is great enough to span the gulf between me and you in order to give me your righteousness and take my sin. You truly took my sin upon your son. And when we trust in Christ for salvation, we're trusting in him for salvation from now into eternity. That's what it means to come to Christ. And so we continue on with these questions in verse 33. Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, meaning for God's sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I stand before you this morning a different man. Not, not just because of the calories I consumed on Thanksgiving Day, but it's because of a football game I played in on Thanksgiving Day. It was not worth how dreadfully sore I have been ever since then. But we won. There I was matched up against my siblings, personally matched up against my oldest brother, And somehow I think I had something to prove. Uh, With every hike, I think I gave more than my all and more than I had. And I think I'm feeling it with every move that I make since then. As I stand here, my back wants to just tighten up all over. But uh, even just the drive home yesterday, as I would step out of the car, I would complain to my kids. It's not just that my legs hurt. It's like I can't move them. <laughs> and there it was, what, two days later after this football game. 
again, I don't think that the victory was worth how sore we all were afterwards. Of course, my oldest brother claimed that he wasn't sore at all. But there are so many times that we know of, maybe personally or from friends or from, from news reports that we see after disasters or after near-death experiences. We saw this in the, in the tornadoes that hit just south of the town of Mace. What do people say after these events? They say with all that they've lost, with all that, that interrupted their lives, they're so grateful for the important things. They're so grateful that they survived. So often they say, we can rebuild all of this, but we can never replace the lives of our family. And we're so grateful, we're so thankful for the lives of our loved ones, for the lives of our family. How often do we hear that? Just thankful that everyone is safe and okay. We dodged a bullet many times it's described. I want you to understand that followers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we have dodged the biggest bullet in existence. We have dodged the just judgment of the king of the universe. We see in this, in these verses that we'll look at, verses 33 through 34 this morning, we see in them in how the next two questions that's asked raise and are answered, answered about legal Terms, a legal sense of, of a Christian's relationship with God. They'll lead us into the courtroom setting where it seems like everyone is waiting to see what will take place. And if you recall, the first chapters of the book of Romans laid out for us how the whole world is condemned without Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote this, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, he was writing it as like a legal argument for why we need the sacrifice and the righteousness of Christ and grace through faith in order to have a relationship with God. And without it, we're lost, whether we're, we're um, unsaved Gentiles or unsaved Jews, righteous in ourselves, self-righteous, unrighteous, whichever. All were condemned, we read about. And now we see how it is that those who are in Christ are not condemned, not even by the head prosecutor, the chief prosecutor, or the chief justice. We're looking this morning at how when court is in session, what will take place? We read in verses 33 through 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, something interesting when it says, who shall bring, this is in the future tense. Who will, who will in the future bring any charge? It's talking about the state that we live in right now, but it paints a picture of the future when we stand before God and Christ is our judge. 
And it suits the context talked about in verses 28 and 29, or 29 and 30, which spanned from eternity past, where God did His saving and choosing work of His beloved, His, his one day to be adopted children, and, and spoke about an eternity future saying, and they will be glorified with me. And in a sense, it's leading us into that future courtroom, explaining this is how it's going to go down. This is how it is going to be. This is how, why, you can have confidence in the fact that God's children will be glorified with Him. It's our present condition, being in Christ, that guarantees our hope of the future. It's God's sovereign hand that is intended to bolster our confidence in His grace toward His adopted children. And we see, first of all, in verse 33, that in Christ, no one can threaten our position. In Christ, no one can threaten our position. Like the other questions asked, the expected response here is in the absolute negative. Who will stand in our way from being glorified when we've been justified by God? The short answer, nobody. No one. And the question is a valid one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Don't you notice how in these verses in Romans 8, he's talking in these extreme terms. God works all things. But all things work together for his glory, for our good. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? I like the Holman Christian says, who will bring any accusation against us? Well, we know that there is one who's called the accuser. Satan is identified as the accuser of God's people. Zechariah sees a vision, and it's recorded in Zechariah 3.1, where he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Revelation 12.10 describes the devil as the accuser of our brothers who has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But the picture of this courtroom, Satan isn't even mentioned. It's like the question goes out, who will bring any accusation And even though he's called the accuser of the brethren, I picture him raising his hand at the question. And imagine the person asking the question saying, does, well, you know, looking at him almost like scornfully, okay, uh, will anyone of any significance bring any accusation? For, For most of us, the fact is, in our shame, we, we'd be sure someone would stand up. Someone from our past who knows what I did. Someone from my family who knows me best. Some of you are, are frozen with fear, thinking, if I were to step out in radical obedience to the Lord, Surely someone will raise their hand and ask, what right does he have 
to make any bold stand. If this question, a writer says, if this question stood on its own, many voices would be raised in accusation. Our conscience accuses us. The devil never ceases to press charges against us. For his title, Diabolos, means slanderer. And he is called the accuser of the brothers. In addition, we doubtless have human enemies who delight to point an accusing finger at us. But none of their allegations can be sustained. Why not? Because God has chosen us. Because God has justified us. Therefore, all accusations fall to the ground. They glance off us like arrows off a shield. For us, having gone this far through the book of Romans, the question is not that concerning, I don't think. But notice that the context still is represented here of how God's children are described. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Still representing God's sovereign work in eternity past for his adopted children. It means chosen out ones. Still referencing God's sovereign, eternal purpose in redeeming us. If you think about it, I mean, Donald Trump is the president-elect, chosen through the primaries, chosen among the candidates. Even though many want to change this, he was elected in this way, chosen as president. And as God's adopted children, having trusted Christ as your Savior, you were elected by Him to be His children forever. And what's being laid out for us, once again here, is just how certain that is. And we see in the response here, it is God who justifies Well, in situations like this where both God and Christ are mentioned, God is referring to God the Father. And and it's, it's the Father's declaring us righteous that is the solution. It's the answer to this question, as always, throughout the book of Romans. The fact that God justifies the ungodly is the answer to our sin is the answer to the accusations against us. We've already been declared righteous by the most just judge in all of the land. And God's whole plan of pouring out His wrath on Christ for our sin was so that we might be righteous and that He might remain the just just, righteous judge. As we were reminded in Romans 6.26, That all of his work in Christ's sacrifice and resurrection was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, even in our sin. Maybe you've you've seen the shows, the show Law and Order. Where, where you've got the, the uh, court case brewing, the, the uh, case against the, the defendant, and, and the prosecutors get together. 
Okay, and there's always a, a, a boss there, and, and they're talking about it, and they're talking about whether or not it's worthwhile to bring the case to trial. You know, can we win it? Is there enough evidence? You know, um, <clears throat> do we think he's guilty, I guess? Well, we're guilty. We are guilty. We have plenty of guilt to be tried for, for sure. But the bottom line is because God justified us. With you being the defendant, there is no prosecutor in the room that is willing to take the case. Because the verdict has already been delivered. And the prosecutor is sitting there saying, he's already been declared righteous. As we've seen throughout Romans, knowing Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, the verdict has been read, righteous. Righteous by God's standard, righteous. And you are challenged, expected to live in thankful boldness as a result. Thankful boldness to sin? No. Thankful boldness in your witness, in your investing in eternal causes, in the use of your time. If you have a thankful boldness to just live in sin, I don't think the indwelling Holy Spirit would let you live that way. We are given a thankful boldness to live with an eternal investment mentality, knowing that every word, every dime, every moment you spend glorifying God here is guaranteed to pay off for eternity. It's not securing your position in eternity. It's banking on it, glorifying God, living large now as a result of your faith in Christ your security in Christ. It's your life marked by radical, thankful boldness in every word, in every dime, in every moment as yours to give away for God's glory. We also see in verse 34, in Christ, no one can condemn me. No one can condemn you. The question here is basically, if there was a case brought against me, who would be the judge and jury to rule on it? Short answer, nobody. No one. He asks, who is to condemn? We've looked at this word before, especially at the beginning of our chapter. To condemn means to curse, to damn for eternity. We condemn people all the time. Unfortunately, we condemn people in our minds thinking he is just never going to change. But look at the response here. Why are we not condemned? I mean, notice it doesn't even say no. It just tells us who's on our side. It's like one of those nations 
that maybe we have a military base on as, as a country saying, um, who is going to attack us? They wouldn't say no one or they wouldn't say, well, maybe them or maybe them. They'd just say, the Americans have a huge military base here. But we're talking about in the whole universe. We're talking about for all of eternity. We're talking about a security, a safety that spans all of time. When the question is asked, who is going to condemn you? The answer is just, Jesus is on his side. Look at what Jesus did. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. But there's also something else significant about him basically stating we being told. What are you talking about? Jesus is on their side. It's that Jesus is the judge. He holds the position of the universe's appointed judge. He says of himself in John 5.22, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And in verse 27, He has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. And the apostles preached in Acts 17.31, explaining to the people of Athens... Why they should believe in Christ. Paul says the reason is because he has fixed a day on which he, being Christ, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that court that will be in session... Not only will there not be a prosecutor willing to take the case because you've already been declared righteous. The judge has already rung out the gavel declaring righteous. And if you know Christ as your Savior, instead of standing before the judge of the universe, he stands beside you. And this being by grace means it's a result of nothing that you have done. In fact, it's in spite of all that you have done. And it's a shower of grace that you constantly stand in. Meaning that he'll never leave your side and be your judge. As he does for those who have not received Christ as their Savior. The certainty of this fact is based on historical events. Christ died for you and paid the full penalty of your sins. He was raised providing, proving that his death was effective. And he's now sitting triumphantly at God's right hand. And he's attesting to the righteous standard of God's children on the basis of his shed blood. Meaning, he's standing there, accusation comes from somebody that doesn't matter. And he's interceding, saying, uh, they're covered with my blood. Yeah, that one too, he's covered with my blood. She's covered with my blood. I'm just glad that he's ever present, you know. 
That he can be there and he can be here with me at the same time. But he is interceding us for us, defending us. Why would he judge us? Just as a side note, this is contrasted with the Catholic doctrine that says that he is still on the cross. If you notice, that's, that's why Jesus is always on the cross, on a crucifix. Because the belief is, is that he is eternally pouring out his blood. He's eternally dying. And it just so happens that that puts man in charge. Because you better keep coming back to get more grace for the weak. Or you'll run out. We are told in confidence that Jesus died. He rose again. He was raised triumphantly. And he sits at his father's right hand interceding for us. And we are told boldly that no one will bring any charge against us. The judge himself has laid claim to us and defends us. You've heard of the court of public opinion. It's where the, what the majority thinks is what matters. We all live in the court of our minds, of our self-opinion. When you should ever wander into the courtroom in your mind, dwelling on your past or your present sins, if you're thinking of God's teaching here, you should imagine Jesus standing there, ready to come to your defense with the proof of his purchased righteousness for you. And the fact is, we are usually our greatest accusers. But notice, once again, what's important is how we consider ourselves. Romans has challenged us time and time again to consider yourself according to the truth. And you should no less do those that in the moments of self-accusation, of self-condemnation. Remember, in, de- in being the fact that we were delivered from a sinful pattern of life, we were called in Romans 6.11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How you consider yourself is important. Also in dealing with suffering, how you consider yourself is important. Paul told us from his example, I consider, in verse 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Hear God out here. Hear the chief prosecutor and the chief justice and what they have to say about your sin. Paid for. Righteous. Taken care of. Nothing between you and him. To sever that relationship. Let him show you the marks on his hands. And the wound in his side. Like doubting Thomas. Was shown. And offered. 
There is nothing left to be paid. And he is pleased with you as his child. You hear that? He is pleased with you as his child. When comes your accusations of lust and laziness and anger and slander, be honest about it. Yeah, Lord, that's me. But that's not how you see me. And so I'm thankful for that. And just say thank you. Do you see how he's bringing us full circle in chapter 8? What did we start with? The awesome statement. Be ready for it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And here's your evidence. Who is there to condemn? The judge died for you. The judge rose from the dead for you. The judge was raised triumphantly. The judge sits at the Father's right hand interceding for you. No wonder there is no condemnation left for you. Let's close in prayer. And we'll continue on in our service of thanksgiving. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hold my sin against me. And thank you, Lord, that this is not because of anything that I've done to earn or to pay for my sin. Thank you, Lord, that it is all based on the work of your son. Thank you, Lord, that you bringing us into your courtroom assure us again and again and again. It's taken care of. It's paid for. You're righteous before me. Thank you, Lord, that you even foresaw the fact that we would need to be reminded again and again and again. And we would need to be assured of against teachings that are otherwise. Assured that we are your children regardless of anything else. Thank you, Jesus for dying for me, for dying for us. Thank you for being powerful enough to rise from the dead, to be seated. Thank you for interceding for me right now. And we pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.